Welcome to history. It is likely that you have studied the subject in some form or another in the past, but we will begin as if you are new to the discipline of history. We must begin with the most obvious of questions. What is history? Well, there is a difference between the term past and the term history. What has elapsed or gone by is in the past. This happens on a daily basis with all of us. History, however, is an account of the past, a written account. More often than not, it is written. Sometimes it may be recorded in other ways. It would be impossible to record all of the past, so history, and therefore historians, have tended to focus on so-called important things in the past, and for a long time, for a long period, hundreds of years, most of what historians have been interested in have been the actions of kings or queens or military leaders or wars rather than the accounts of ordinary people because there's not always been access to the accounts of ordinary people because they simply do not exist. Therefore, history tends to be a written account by historians of things that were written down for historians to then examine and look at. It should be noted that in Britain, Europe and in parts of the USA, history was mostly um, a, a, a procedure where there was a written narrative. However, that is not always the case when we move away from the so-called Western versions of history. For example, Native American tribes in North America recorded their history in a different way using symbols, for example, or folk stories that were passed down from one generation to the next. In the 20th century, video recordings and documentaries became methods of documenting history. When contemporary historians engage in research to study a specific period, they require access to sources. And there are two broad types of sources that you're going to get very familiar with over the coming years. These are primary and secondary sources. We will start with primary. Primary sources um, can include a, a, a wide range of documents and artefacts that it is important to, to, to kind of note this and remember this at a very early stage, um, that were produced in the period being studied. So a primary source is a source that was produced in the period that is being studied. For example, if you were studying the causes um, of the American Civil War, primary sources you could consult would include written speeches by men such as Abraham Lincoln, who was the President of the United States when the Civil War broke out. And his speech is very much a, a primary source. If an American newspaper, let's say in 1861, reported um, a speech from Lincoln, this would also be a primary source for historians. Both come from the period under study. It is also uh, worth noting that uh, a speech or a newspaper, newspaper article are both public primary sources. They are presented to the public 
um, either via a newspaper or via um, a, a, a demonstration of a crowd who have turned up to listen to um, Lincoln speak. An example of a private primary source could be a diary or a letter. Um, the diary was never written with the intention of anybody seeing it. Um, quite useful to historians because they are getting a glimpse into someone's um, mindset. And a letter, more often than not, is only meant to be um, a piece of correspondence for two people, one person who writes it and the recipient of the letter. And these private sources um, can be, uh, in some cases, more useful than public sources. Now, let's move on to uh, secondary sources. These are the published works of historians, which we more often than not refer to as history books. From reading secondary um, sources, historians um, can uh, gain knowledge of a historical period. They can gain um, knowledge of the questions that have been asked by previous historians, and they will often get the answers to these questions that previous historians um, have asked. And in the process, they might, these new historians might start to think of new questions that might need addressing areas that perhaps have not been examined in enough detail by a previous generation. The knowledge of a period that has been um, acquired from reading secondary sources um, is essential when we come to interpret primary sources. Thus, there is an interplay between primary sources and um, secondary sources. Um, what I would say is that if you think of examples where this um, where this happens, you can start to get your head around this kind of interaction between primary and secondary. So, for example, um, secondary sources provide us with context for primary sources, and new primary sources can lead to new um, secondary sources. Let's look at an example. On your Sway presentation, there is a link to um, African-American slave testimonies. If you uh, click on this link, and in your own time you can read through this in more detail, but you will see that the American government in the 1930s asked unemployed um, writers and unemployed historians and artists to interview ex-slaves before the final generation of those who experienced slavery um, had, had died. Up until this um, point, historical interpretations of slavery relied mostly um, on um, records that were available um, to historians and these records tended to be from um, white southern plantation records documents, logbooks of slave owners, or newspapers of the day, or legal cases of the day, or speeches made by southern politicians and so on. The voices of those who lived through slavery, those who were the, to some extent, the victims of slavery, um, I'll come back to that to extent part in a minute, had been um, largely silent until these interviews took place. And... Um, when they were recorded, all of a sudden, there was a new resource available for historians. So when new histories of slavery were written in America post-World War II, these slave narrative sources um, were um, available to historians. And this new resource would alter previous interpretations of the American institution of slavery. Including the notion, and this comes back to my victim um, point, including the notion that all slaves were helpless victims 
as the testimonies and examples did make clear that slaves often resisted and often opposed the behaviours and actions of their slave owners. So these slave testimonies of the 1930s suggest that there was agency amongst the, the, the slave population and slaves were not passive victims of racism and slavery. I now want to talk about objectivity. Can history be objective, as the German historian Leopold von Ranke hoped it would be? Could it be a discipline that established the truth from a study of primary sources? Is it possible for historians who have political or religious views of their own to be completely objective? Can history sources be objectively studied? Can different historians interpret the same sources differently? Let's examine one example in which objectivity can be questioned. And this example is the Reformation. When the Reformation began in the 16th century, it was welcomed by those who were um, opposed to what they believed was the corruption present within the, the church um, in the um, Middle Ages, uh, and the church was controlled by the Pope in Rome. These protesters, or as they came to be known, Protestants, um, were really um, in favour of reform uh, within the church. Um, didn't necessarily want to start a new religion, but they just wanted to reform the church. And eventually they believed it was necessary for the church to split and for Protestants to take Christianity down a different um, pathway. Um, and therefore, you know, the Vatican would no longer control all aspects of Christianity. Hence why in Europe today we have Catholic regions of the continent and Protestant regions. Now, the, the written and recorded history of the Reformation was initiated by those who promoted it. Protestants, often Protestant clergy. The Reformation was put forward by these historians in a positive light. They took the view that it was inevitable, it had to happen. Now, the question we might want to think about is, would Catholic historians or Catholic priests, would they take the same um, position as Protestant historians? Should historians, Catholic or Protestant, make their religion known if they are to write a history of the Reformation? That is the point. Is it not better if the historian announces his or her position at the outset of their work. And it doesn't just have to be religious position. If they're writing a history on something else, then maybe their political views should be stated or stipulated at the beginning of a piece of work so that the reader can tell maybe why they take, maybe why the historian takes a particular perspective. Now, this does not mean that history is like propaganda where historians only write what suits their worldview. Doesn't mean that at all, but it does caution us um, and makes us aware of maybe some subjective attitudes that could be present in historical writing. In your own time, I want you to watch the short video clip about Scottish independence, which is available on the Sway presentation, where two Scottish historians, Tom Devine and Neil Ferguson, disagree with each other over Scotland's status in the world. Now, both historians are entitled to their views, but if they were to write a history of the British Union, do you think they would come to different conclusions? because of their different political perspectives. Ferguson 
still argues online and in his books and documentaries that the British Empire was a force for good more often than not, with some blemishes. He has stated, The British sacrificed her empire to stop the Germans, Japanese and Italians from keeping theirs. Did not their sacrifice alone expunge all the empire's other sins? You can decide for yourself if you agree with Ferguson's interpretation of the British Empire. Many historians, like Devine, would reject such a view. Finally, I want to touch on why study history. Why do we study history? Okay. First reason is enjoyment, and that makes perfect sense. History is interesting most of the time, depending on what your interests might be. Um, some subjects may be more interesting than others. But history is very much part of the, the culture industry that exists. For example, um, package holidays often have excursions where history is a key element of those excursions. Museums that people may visit in cities on city breaks um, often have a history um, focus. Um, you will have mu museums and um, other kind of... Um, aspects of, of, of maybe city life, including historical walking tours uh, that have kind of proven to be quite interesting, or um, visits to rather dark historical sites like extermination camps in uh, Poland. And you will also have um, documentaries that are enjoyable, or TV programmes or books that are enjoyable. So history can be something that is done for fun, in adverted commas, and that is absolutely um, fine. But are there other reasons as to why we study history to determine if history has seen societies progress or regress? For example, progress has been made in terms of how society in the UK has treated people with mental health problems and uh, disabilities. A study of asylums and institutions up until the 1990s would show us that there has definitely been progress in this area. Although, it should be noted, there are no obvious um, museums of, uh, of this topic and maybe that is an area where there could be um, some further progress, maybe old asylums used as museums to demonstrate just how um, terrible these places could be for the, the, the patients. Um, perhaps a history of the um, kind of British social class relations might suggest regression in terms of how society um, looks at social class because the gap between the rich and the poor has actually widened um, in, in recent times. So maybe um, that analysis of, of history would, would tell us that things have not necessarily gotten better uh, and maybe the persistence of things like food banks in the 21st century, um, people would think that that would be something that um, would, would, would not be present, you know, 200 years after the, the workhouses had been established. So, do we therefore study history to learn from errors made in the past? When we study topics such as Nazi Germany, um, do we do this so as to ensure that such a movement um, is not able to take power again? Or finally, do we study history to be inspired by people and communities from the past who have invoked positive changes? Martin Luther King, for example, is very much a figure that has been um, studied because he has been 
um, inspirational or was inspirational in some of the things that he achieved, obviously in the area of racial justice. The suffragettes have inspired generations of women and feminists and men who um, can look at their methods and their um, views on why women were um, entitled to the same rights as men. Or you could look at working class communities who um, participated in the Chartist movement of the 19th century, where these uh, men and women campaign for the simple right to um, to vote. Democracy was at the heart of, of Chartism. Okay, quite a lot of information to take in in this uh, first little um, podcast, but my main intention is just to get you thinking about history and why, um, why we study um, history, why you are about to do what you do, what um, is going to hopefully be of interest to you this year, but be this idea that you can really um, investigate the past and try to come to certain um, conclusions. Okay, thanks for listening. And please um, check emails and my city for further information that you will be required to do based on this podcast lesson. Hello, and welcome to a podcast on an introduction to American history. Last year, we began our study of history with a discussion about whether or not the academic discipline of history can be studied objectively. You may recall the short video clip we watched featuring two contrasting historians on Scotland's status in the world. And this was at the time of the 2014 independence referendum. These historians, Niall Ferguson and Tom Devine, had um, competing political views and the point we tried to make last year was whether or not political views in the present day could influence consciously or subconsciously historical research. My own view is that history is rarely objective and as a result it is desirable for historians to make clear, when possible, their beliefs where they lie, perhaps, on the political spectrum. This is my take on history and how it should be um, studied. And um, it should be noted, however, that many historians do regard themselves as apolitical. We should therefore assume that these historians who hold such views do not actually hold such views and that they probably do not vote or have opinions on social, political, moral or economic issues. After one year of attending my classes, you possibly already have an inclination of how I think history should be studied. My preference is to look at history from below. The experiences, good and bad, of ordinary people, rather than examining kings, queens, military leaders, prime ministers, presidents and so on. Our study of American history will follow this path wherever possible. That therefore includes looking at working people, Native Americans, women, African Americans and those who feel that they have been oppressed within American society. On your sway presentation you will see photographs of two men, Antonio Gramsci and Howard Zinn. Gramsci was a radical thinker and he is the social theorist 
responsible for the um, incredibly popular concept of hegemony. His desire to educate the poor and the working class in Italy led to his arrest by Mussolini's fascist police and he died in an Italian prison cell in 1937. Now, another one of Gramsci's concepts is known as the organic intellectual. Here, Gramsci refers to intellectuals within the working class who would educate the working class themselves in order to overcome the bourgeois education and ideology that is presented to the working class in capitalist society via schools and the mass media. What does this have to do with American history? Well, the second photograph in this way presentation is historian Howard Zinn, who passed away in 2010. It could be argued that Zinn was an upfront, honest and open organic intellectual as described by Antonio Gramsci, a member of the working class who wished to teach and educate other members of the working class. It was Zinn's aim as a professor and author to use his books to teach working class history to the working class, although many of his students would have been middle class college students. I want you to buy Zinn's book this year. You do not have to agree with Zinn's um, interpretation of American history, and there is a real possibility that some of you will be able to critically evaluate Zinn's writings as you study his uh, book, A People's History of the United States. Zinn's book has unquestionably caused uh, controversy over the years, in part because he is incredibly critical of American foreign policy. Not long after Zinn died, Arizona Governor Mitch Daniels described Zinn's people's history as a truly execrable, anti-factual piece of disinformation that misstates American history on every page. This is a book that I wish for you to buy. Daniels also called for the book to be banned in Indiana. And in Arkansas in 2017, Republican State Representative Kim Hendren put forward a bill for Zinn to be banned in Arkansas schools. Not only did the bill fail um, without any problem whatsoever, but the um, controversy surrounding Hendren's suggestion resulted in Arkansas libraries being swamped with requests for Zinn's book. Whilst at the same time, approximately 700 copies of Zinn's People's History were sent to Arkansas schools and libraries from Zinn fans across the United States. At this point, you should pause this podcast and watch the eight-minute Democracy Now! clip on the Sway presentation. The views of Mitch Daniels, which are referred to in this clip, are unsurprisingly widespread and in the week that I am recording this podcast, President Trump has attempted to undermine the New York Times 1619 project. This project set up by the New York Times magazine encourages teachers in the United States to teach more African American history. The 1619 Project website is definitely worth 
looking at. In the summer of 2020, a bill was submitted to Congress called the Saving American History Act. Republican Representative Tom Cotton wants to defund the 1619 project, claiming that it is false to argue that the United States was founded on the ideals of slavery and oppression. And, in the process, Cotton calls the 1619 project racially divisive. It should be noted that when the USA was founded, it was a racially divided country and thus racially divisive. Even before independence from Britain, the American colonies were also divided along social class lines. When you do eventually get round to buying Zinn's book, you should go to page 49, um, sorry, page 48 and page 49, and here you can read a little bit about some of the examples where Zinn talks about social class um, differences that existed in the American colonies. So, for example, at the top of page 48, Zinn writes, At the very start of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, in 1630, the governor, John Winthrop, had declared the philosophy of the rulers. In all times, some must be rich, some poor, some high and eminent in power and dignity, others mean and in subjection. It's worth reading all of pages uh, 48 and 49. What Zinn makes clear is that the social relations from the old country were exported across the Atlantic. And aristocracy did persist in the United States even after independence, and therefore so did inequality and poverty. On page 49 of Zinn's People's History, he gives a description of a poor house that had been established because, this is in New York, because of the unequal relations that existed in that colony, which would eventually become, obviously, the state of New York. Zinn was ultimately an optimist. Not an anti-American, but someone who hoped that America could become a fairer and less violent country, both at home and abroad. Zinn, it should be noted, had dropped bombs on Germany during World War II as a um, pilot in the American Air Force and this undoubtedly pushed him towards a pacifist position as his life developed. You might think that um, Zinn um, could to some extent be regarded as a little bit of a, a visionary because of recent events in the United States. You might think that tearing down of statues or the changing of street names are fairly limited or even pointless acts. But Zinn would argue against this. In 2002, he said, Small acts of resistance to authority, if persisted in, may lead to large social movements. Ordinary people are capable of ex extraordinary acts of courage. Those in power who confidently say, never, to the possibility of change, may live to be embarrassed by those words. 
Now, you might be inspired by Zinn, or you may dislike him, but at least he makes discussions about American history interesting. You should now listen to the short audio clip of Zinn introducing his famous book, The People's History, and you can find this link on the Sway presentation. And in the following slide, after the audio clip, you can find questions to answer on what Zinn says about the purpose of his book. The final question states, do you agree with Zinn and the French philosopher Albert Camus that in a world of conflict with executioners and victims that you shall be on the side of the victims? Have a think and thank you for listening.